It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Tuesday morning, the 4th of October. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11 a.m. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. It's a week on since Budget 2023 was announced. And there were very few surprises last week because most of the details had been leaked in advance of the official announcement. But there was this one bombshell. Earlier this year, the government agreed a comprehensive redress scheme for those owners who have been affected by the issue of defective products used in the building of their homes. This redress scheme comes with a significant cost, and therefore I am bringing forward a levy on concrete blocks, pouring concrete, and certain other concrete products. The levy is expected to raise €80 million annually and will be applied from the 3rd of April 2023 at a rate of 10%. The Minister for Finance, Pascal Donoghue, in his budget speech in the Dáil a week ago, announcing this defective concrete products levy, much to the surprise, it has to be said, of the construction industry. Builders say they had no prior warning of the levy before the budget was announced, no prior warning that it was planned, and that this announcement came as a shock to them. And indeed, there's been much criticism of the measure from prospective first-time buyers, from farmers, from the Society of Chartered Surveyors and from politicians. There's been strong criticism from the opposition benches but it's not just opposition TDs who have voiced concern with many backbench government TDs saying they are concerned that this levy will only compound what is a long-running crisis in housing. This evening the measure is set to be debated in the Dáil with a Sinn Féin private members motion calling for it to be scrapped. Let's speak 
Mika to Porik Midlachlan Sinn Féin TD for Donegal and a very good morning to you and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. You're acutely aware of the Mika crisis and the concern that there is about rebuilding homes in Donegal and elsewhere. This levy is set to raise just 80 million. That in itself uh, will come as a surprise to people given the extent of the bill that is expected from the Mika crisis. Yeah, I mean, the government have been a mess uh, of this on two levels. One is that uh, they've never shown any real appetite to go after those who were responsible. I suppose if you go back to the pyrite scandal in Dublin and North Leinster, uh, if you look at the you know tens of thousands of homes and apartments um, that were uh, impacted by defects from the Celtic Tiger era, and then, of course, along the west of Ireland from the top of Donegal, right down to Limerick, where... Uh, defective concrete blocks came out of quarries um, and those responsible for all of that uh, haven't been held to account. A year ago the government talked about appointing a senior council that would do a scoping investigation for a public inquiry. That senior council hasn't been appointed, not even the terms of reference have been drafted, so you've all of that and then making a mess of this levy, I think, is the final straw for the families. All right, uh, but somebody has to foot the bill, uh, and that is uh, the argument uh, that the government is putting forward. It'll be a significant bill running far higher than that 80 million that this levy uh, will raise in revenue for the exchequer. And they say it'll only add a small amount of money onto the price of a house. Well, the Society of Chartered Surveyors of Ireland um, estimated it could be anything up to €4,000 uh, for a semi-detached uh, home. Um, so it is really worrying for those who are first-time buyers uh, and indeed for those who are rebuilding their homes in the west of Ireland. And look, we have called in Sinn Féin um, for many years to look at the whole idea of the banking, retaining that banking levy. Um, the banks have profited hugely um, from you know assets that were pretty much uh, valueless along the west of Ireland. We're talking about thousands of homes being restored uh, through government intervention, and rightly so, uh, to full market value. And they haven't put a cent on the table. Not only that, they're not even helping families restructure their mortgages and loans. I mean, it's quite shameful how the banks have behaved. So certainly a levy should be applied to them. There are developers um, who are very profitable. We should be looking at those profits um, especially developers who may be involved in building defective apartments and then, you know, those who are responsible. And there's mm. some very strong firms in this country who were responsible for these defective homes that should be paying their way to. Yeah, and uh, that the quarry should be pursued, is it? Well, absolutely. I mean, we learned, uh, Michael, in July in the Oireachtas Committee um, that, you know, it was stated that there are quarries still producing defective concrete blocks. Can you believe it? in this country today. And, you know, the lack of oversight, um, we can't be certain, as I speak right now, even though the taxpayer across this country will pay billions and billions of euro to clean up this mess, we still can't be certain that there aren't quarries and manufacturers out there making these products that destroy people's lives. Well, it's relatively easy to understand. Uh, I mean... Uh, in the sense that after pyrite, if there was a problem with mica, uh, well, then there obviously isn't a sufficient uh, system of oversight. Uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, we had a situation where it was self-regulation, light-touch regulation, no regulation for so many years. You know, it's well documented the repeated failures 
to put in place a strong oversight of the industry to make sure. I mean, the presence of mm. what's called deleterious materials or minerals like mica, pyrite, pyrotite have been around for many, many decades, yet there wasn't the proper oversight externally of the industry. Um, and we're paying a huge price for that now. OK, but this is a, a tax on the industry, is it not? Uh, and why will it be passed on to house buyers or, or farmers or somebody who's doing some rebuilding? You see, the, the principle of a levy you know, is one that should be looked at absolutely um, as part of the solution to restoring people's homes. Uh, but as, as often the case of this government, they make a mess of something that's a good enough principle. Uh, by applying a 10% levy to the products that will be passed on, uh, and obviously uh, to as much as €4,000 per new home and homes being rebuilt. So they have to scrap this, go back to the drawing board. Definitely mm. there should be a levy on the banking sector. My God. I mean, I, I just find it extraordinary the number of exchanges I had with Pascal uh, Donoghue, the finance minister, how he can't get his head around the fact that the banks have got away with a massive amount of money uh, in places like Donegal and haven't stumped up a cent, haven't even helped the families to renegotiate their mortgages. It's bloody shameful the way they've behaved. So they absolutely should have a levy put on them. Okay, well, that's what your uh, motion calls for this evening, that uh, instead of uh, a levy on the products, to be a levy on the banks, uh, on the profits of the big developers and those who were responsible for the defects. But what's the difference between the two? Will they not pass that on uh, to those uh, they're selling their products to, whether that's mortgages or houses? Well, I think what you're doing um, with a more fair levy is you're putting the burden um, much more wider in society, spreading it much uh, fervor, like obviously the taxpayer is paying for this too. So you're spreading that burden. You're also asking those who are responsible to make an actual contribution. Right now, they're getting away with murder, um, and you know that that that's the key thing. The problem with this one is that the burdens put on new home buyers, on people who are rebuilding their homes. It's just daft, uh, and they've made a mess of it, and they need to correct it. Mm, but if you reduce profits, won't that make business more expensive for those who are developers? Uh, and won't that mean that the price of houses will go up anyway? Well, as you know, Michael, I mean, we have the precedent of the levy on the insurance industry uh, due to uh, a number of you know, bankruptcies, collapses, masses, um, again, due to lack of state regulation. So the, that principle of a small levy that is spread across society is already in place. There has to be some, you know, there has to be some price paid by those who make an absolute mess, who fail in their responsibilities, to destroy people's lives. Like it can't be said that you will pay no price whatsoever. Um, so we just need to find a way that is manageable and fair and balanced across society. And is that the solution, that it's a tax on all of us in the country effectively, or is there another way of approaching this? What's the MICA bill going to run to, uh, a maximum of £2 billion or something? Well, uh, well, absolutely. well, if you put in the defective apartments, tens of thousands, if you throw in pyrite, if you throw in this mess now in the west of Ireland, yeah, you're into billions of euro. I suppose what I would say is this, is that if you look at you know the United States, for example, where you have... Um, you know, the, the flooding disasters in New Orleans or the wildfires in California, there is where you have natural disasters impacting so many people. Everybody pulls them together to get their lives back. You know, that's just something that every state country, unfortunately, has to, you know, you have to 
deal with that. You don't abandon people. Like for me, I'm a TD in Donegal. Mm. Of course, I know so many families, but I wouldn't care if not one single family came from Donegal. If they're all from Cork or Kerry, I wouldn't have them abandoned. And that's the principle that we... And, and unfortunately, too, you know, I say this to people who are taxpayers who aren't affected at all listening today. You know, this is the price of terrible governance. This is the price of no regulation, no oversight, too close a relationship between industry and government. This is the price we pay. So, you know, you need to demand of your politicians that they learn the lessons, that we have a public inquiry, that those who are responsible are brought to justice where possible. Uh, and none of that is happening right now. You're paying the bill, but none of that is happening. And that's what we should be demanding. OK, as you said, the Society of Chartered Surveyors estimate that this will add €4,000 to the cost of a, a new semi-detached house. Uh, the government says it'll be more like 1600 uh, Would 1600 matter? Well, I just think that if you are a, you know, obviously in, a, in an era of severe housing inflation, um, you're a new home buyer. If you're a family having to rebuild your home for a second time, you know, it's unacceptable. Um, but I would be more inclined to look at the SCSI. I mean, the Society Charters of Ireland are the industry accepted pricers. You know, if you're insurance, if you're a building, it's them you look at. So I would tend to take their guidance uh, more than the Department of of housing or finance at this stage. Okay, there's an interesting poll in the Daily Mail today, in a Morrick poll uh, for the Daily Mail of some 1,500 adults, and it's found that 46% of those surveyed uh, who want to get on the property ladder say that prices would have to drop by more than 15%, and 16% of the overall population would need prices to drop by 50% in, in order to be able to afford to buy a house. Yeah, it's, it's just terrifying what's happened, you know. Um, the social contract, Michael, has been torn up here. I mean, we always had a contract where if you were a young person, uh, you get an education or get training, you know, work full time, and you would have a roof over your head for your family if that's what you wanted. You'd be able to afford a, you know, a reasonable home. Uh, and that's been torn up now. And we have a situation in, all across the country, you know, obviously where I'm from, uh, we're well used to emigration, but it used to be because you couldn't get a job. Now you can get a job. You cannot put a roof over your head. You can't even afford to pay the rent. And that is, I mean, and until we turn that around, you know, mm. we have torn up the social contract. And we have to, that's what my problem, with the big problem with this most recent budget is, is that you have to turn that around year after year after year until you get to the point that people can afford to pay the rent to put a roof over their head if they are working full time. Um, and, and you know that, that's that's where we're at and this government I don't think get that Okay well if half of the prospective first time buyers in the country need prices to fall by 50% you'd have to conclude that uh, half of the prospective first time buyers in uh, the country are not going to be in a position to buy a home uh, and 1,600 or 4,000 won't do anything to change that but uh, it might be a step in the right direction well, I think that the big issue is that we for 10 years, for a whole decade, stopped building social housing. And therefore, we pushed, you know, tens of thousands again and again and again into the private rental market. That means you have a low availability. Uh, Of course, prices increase. So rent has gone through the roof. The cost of housing has gone through the roof because we stopped building houses on on Mm. public land, you know, for a decade. And it was astonishing. Uh, We're paying the price of that shocking, stupid policy now. And until we start to build 20,000 social and affordable houses, 
for the foreseeable future. It'll take a number of years, but unless that is done, we won't turn this around, and that's okay. the problem right now. I, th- I think a lot of people were scratching their head over the weekend listening to the Taoiseach talking a- about introducing this levy in a, a way that would involve some mechanic that would prevent it from being passed on to first-time buyers. Uh, can you make any sense of that? No, and I, I was talking briefly to my colleague, Pierce Doherty, our spokesperson on finance yesterday, and he was puzzled uh, about this. I think they're in, under pressure. Uh, obviously, a lot of backbench TDs, Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, are you know, rightly very uncomfortable about this, but they have a chance. There's a debate tonight, there's a mm-hmm. vote tomorrow night, uh, on this issue. Uh, they know this is wrong. They know that the banks uh, and the more profitable uh, developers, especially those who are involved in actually you know, constructing some of these defective apartments, they, they should be putting towards this. And that's the fair way to do it. Mm. So I hope the government will reverse this before the finance bill. Uh, I hope that government TDs make a stand tomorrow night and that's what needs to be done. Okay, I take it though that's not what's going to happen and that the TDs will say that they'll be looking for the detail in the finance bill as to how this levy will be applied and hope that it won't be passed on to first-time buyers somehow. Yeah, the problem for backbench TDs though is that whenever they kick up a storm, either privately or publicly, and they say they're against something and they say they're concerned about something, then when a vote is put, if they don't, you know, you know, if they don't actually follow through on that and allow that to continue, that that so-called injustice as they see it to continue, then they have no credibility. Uh, and you know, I, if I were a backbench TD and I've spoken out publicly, and you do, you know, follow the the usual pattern uh, tomorrow night, you know, you're going to have problems at the next election. And you know, there comes a point where where backbench TDs need to stand up if they're if they feel something's wrong in their party, they need to stand up and do something about it. And uh, that will be watched very closely by the voters in the time ahead. Now, of course, all of this is framed by the cost of living crisis and uh, the soaring energy bills uh, that we're all uh, aware of and are going to become even more aware of as uh, they increase uh, in uh, the next round of bills, it, it seems. And I'm sure that that's leading to problems with people affording housing and so forth. Today, the Cabinet is to discuss how the €600 Euro credit is to be given to people. It seems as though there'll be 200 in November, January and again in March. Uh, but they've to work out issues such as uh, the pay-as-you-go meters and how to pay money to travellers on halting sites or how they can have the credit uh, from uh, their local authority, from the county council, as the case may be. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously Pierce Doherty, our, our spokesperson on finance, Mairead Fard, our spokesperson on public expenditure, they put forward our alternative uh, budget and in that we talked about a cap on electricity prices to give people certainty uh, in the time ahead. And that is what's happening all across Europe. And Germany is the most recent country to do that. Our government chose not to do it, um, and time will tell uh, if they've done the right thing. I, I believe they're wrong. All right. We'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme uh, today. That's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Donegal, Porrick McLaughlin. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, obviously, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has led to a huge displacement of people. Many of those fleeing the war have ended up in Ireland, and those numbers are being tracked by the Central Statistics Office. Let's speak to Declan Smith, who's senior statistician with the CSO. And a very good morning to you, Declan, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme. The CSO publishing the sixth in a series of reports on arrivals of people to this country from Ukraine. What can you tell us? Um, 
Okay, Michael, I suppose like we're six months now into the into the crisis, um, and as of the 25th of September, we've estimated that there have been just under 55,000 arrivals from Ukraine coming into the country under the Temporary Protection Directive. Um, and that's uh, showing as well that a thousand of those come in just in the in the week leading up to the 25th of September. Mm. If we look back over even four weeks, we're seeing that there was an average of about 100 and 150 coming in. And in the last two weeks, that range has gone closer to the, to the 150. So even six months in, there is still a steady flow of people arriving from Ukraine. Okay, a, a, a little under uh, 10,000 a month on average. It's an incredible amount of people to come into a country of this size. Uh, has there ever been so many immigrants in, in such a short space of time previously? Uh, well, I, I, I wouldn't have thought there would have been such a, an, a concentration of one cohort uh, coming into the country, say, from, from one um, nationality. Mm. Like we would have had the, the EU enlargement back in the early noughties, and after the years immediately after that, there would have been a, an influx of immigrants. But they were coming from the, the 10 accession uh, countries. In this instance, what we're just seeing is the flow of people from one country, and particularly, too, when we look at the numbers, um, we, we can... Yes, uh, you know, look at the demographics of, of who are these people coming yeah, in. Yeah. Um, women aged 20 and over account for 46%, um, while individuals, either male or female, aged uh, under 19 or 19, uh, make up 25%. So between those two groups alone, 81% is basically women and children coming in. When we look at the, the, the relationships um, that they have using the, the broad relationship classification that we've applied to this instance, 35% of arrivals are classified as one parent with children. So again, it's, it's, it's the women and children team. And obviously, in reality, these aren't single parents. Their, their partners are still back at home. Um, fighting in Ukraine. Okay, well, that's the obvious reason for that. Uh, and uh, the women fleeing with their children where possible. Uh, and those uh, children uh, putting demands on the education sector here, uh, there's a, a lot of children have arrived into the country who are going to school in this country. Um, yeah, there will be. Not. We don't have enrolment figures yet um, just available for this series. We will for the next one. Um, but, we're, we're, you know, we're expecting to see uh, high enrolments. OK, but it's estimated to be at around 12,000, I think, is it? Uh, I think that was the figure that was just published by the Department of Education. That's right. So, uh, like that, like with all the services that have been provided in the country, um, we now suddenly have you know, just under 55,000 more people trying to avail of those services. And I suppose, Michael, if I can, just to put into context, like, we're talking about 55,000 people, it's an abstract number. Yeah. Um, just to kind of put into the context, too, I, I was just looking at the, the census preliminary 2022 results and looking at the, the population counts of, of counties. Um, like Leitrim has a population of, of 32,000, Longford just under 41,000. Carlow has a population of 56,000. Right. And now all of a sudden we're talking about uh, 55,000 people have come in in the space of six months. So you can imagine yeah. the, the strains that will put on, on services. Oh, absolutely. Uh, equivalent uh, to uh, the population of Carlow, uh, there or thereabouts, 56,000 yeah. compared to about 55,000. Uh, but uh, it's not 55,000 people who were born in Carlow, uh, which brings uh, further challenges. Uh, there's a, a significant problem with seeing from your stats uh, with language there's a, a lot of people uh, who would like uh, to get English lessons um, yeah uh, what we could see from the um, employment uh, 
support services um, uh, that have been put in place by the Interior Public Employment Services, the DSP, that uh, of the 25th of September, um, that of, of adults that have attended these uh, employment support services, nearly just over two thirds of them um, were noted to have English language as being um, uh, English language proficiency as being noted as being a challenge to, to find an employment. While on the other hand, um, of those that had uh, their previous employment occupation recorded, um, of the, the, the just uh, over 19,500 that had attended mm-hmm. these events, um, 14,209 had recorded their previous employments at the event and one third of those were shown to be uh, professionals mm. um, which uh, would include things like health professionals, yep. teaching professionals, business and admin professionals and as well what we've seen too that of those that recorded their uh, education uh, level of attainment, two thirds of those had an NFQ level of seven or higher, which is a degree or higher. So although there's a challenge with proficient, yeah. uh, proficiency in English, there are a very uh, skilled workforce as well that's coming in. Yeah, that's uh, absolutely right. There's an opportunity there for us to tap into uh, 32%, uh, I think uh, you reported, are professionals. Uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, I'm sure I'm no different than anybody else. I know a, a number of Ukrainians. I know some Ukrainians who are professionals and are, are working as cleaners and uh, different jobs like that uh, because of of language problems and other obstacles. Are, are there many obstacles uh, other than language uh, for people getting employment in this country? Um, they were, I suppose, the ones that, that had jumped out. Um, uh, to us, and I'm just going to jump sure. back in yeah. here and just see if I can give you a wee bit more detail, Michael, on mm-hmm. that. Um, there was, I suppose, other things included to uh, like some people may have found it had one or more barriers, uh, which was a very high percentage. Um, the proportion that had access to childcare and our transport representing a barrier to work was about five percent. So you know, it's, it's, it, when you look, when you see the sixty-seven percent mm. coming through for for those, you know, noted that English was was a barrier. It, it stands out quite stark. Yeah, well, I, I suppose uh, it, it follows logically because you've women and children, uh, and somebody is going to have to look after the very young children if the mm-hmm. women are, are going to go to work. Uh, but uh, what's I know some Ukrainians, and I'm sure everybody listening to us knows uh, a number of Ukrainians at, at this stage. Uh, probably people in Killarney know more Ukrainians than we would here in Loud and Beath. Um, yeah, the, we've, the way we've approached this is we've mapped. Um, people that uh, their arrivals coming in from Ukraine to a local electoral area. Now, the country is broken down into 166 local electoral areas, and for the vast majority of those that we could map, it, it was based on the post office, which they would be um, receiving social welfare benefits from the Department of, of Social Protection, uh, where they're required to call in on site. Now, we're trying to enhance that all the time, and now the accommodation recognition payments are coming in where if someone is hosting uh, arrived from Ukraine, um, at least one individual from, from Ukraine in, in accommodation, and they meet the right criteria, they can apply for this accommodation recognition payment. So we're, we're using that more and more where that is available, and where that's not available, we try to fall back on the on the post office address. When we take these, this twin approach, we're able to map about 95% of the arrivals, and what that has shown us is that two LEAs both have the, the 
joint highest number of arrivals from Ukraine, and one of those is not inner city in County Dublin, and then Killarney and County Kerry, where both uh, we've estimated that there's just over 1,500 arrivals. Okay, well, I know that they are very welcome and people are... are, are uh, so happy uh, to uh, see uh, that uh, they can find uh, asylum in this country. Uh, it's a staggering amount of people at the same time. Poses many challenges and indeed presents many opportunities. Uh, but uh, thank you indeed for telling us a little bit about our new neighbours, all 55,000 of them who have arrived into this country since February from Ukraine. That is Declan Smith, who's a senior statistician with the Central Statistics Office. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, there is some hope, it would seem, for people worried about house prices in the latest report from myhome.ie. And while prices rose nationally by 7.8% in the last year, indeed by 14.01% in Mead and 2.22% in Louth, in the third quarter of this year, nationally prices actually fell. Let's speak to Joanne Geary, who's the managing director of myhome.ie and a very good morning to you Joanne and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning is that at last that's half full or half empty because they do tend to fall during the summer months do they not? Well they do and I think certainly what we can see here you know if I look back to you know the first quarter of the year we were looking at annual asking price inflation at 12.3% and then that started to slow to 109 in, in the second quarter and we were predicting back then that we would have expected to see a continuing slowdown on asking price inflation in this quarter, and that has happened. Um, we're now standing at nationally 7.8% asking price inflation. But there is a bit of seasonality in this for sure, which would typically happen in, in a market after the really busy um, spring into summer trading months. You would typically see asking prices starting to slow down in quarter three. There must I think be, our main, sorry. I, I'm sorry, Joanne. I was going to say there must be huge demand for housing in, in me, though, because uh, it's going in the other direction. Whilst prices fell in, in the third quarter nationally, they continue to rise in County Mead. Um, well, in Mead, in the third um, quarter, they rose by uh, just over €4,000 um, for a typical median asking price there. But you could see in Mead, actually, prices were steady in the first quarter of the year. And they rose in quarter two by um, €10,000. And now they're rising by just over that that €4,000. So you could see that that quarter two, so those months, kind of April, May, June, um, would have been uh, when when prices were increasing at at their peak in Meads. And it was somewhat similar in Louth, actually, Mm. whereas prices stayed steady in Louth in this quarter. Um, So a minor enough increase in Meads. So you can certainly see what's happening in the market is that in quarter two, um, asking prices were continuing at a pace and certainly that's starting to cool off now somewhat in Q3 and we expect that that will cool off a bit more in Q4 actually. Okay, but they won't drop in price, will they? No, we're not, we're not predicting um, prices to drop as such. It's just more the momentum about around the rising mm. uh, inflation on asking prices and the reason that people might be saying, well, why, why am I saying that prices are unlikely to drop? The main reason is that demand in this market is still remarkably strong and robust. In Mead and Loud and every um, part of the country, actually, we have a very um, strong uh, de- uh, demographic in our favour. We have practical full employment. 
you know, our mortgage interest rates, while they are increasing, are still quite low by European terms. And the main reason I think that asking prices will continue to stay um, to stay as they are effectively in this market is the dysfunctional rental market that we're in. And what our customers and my home and our agents are telling us is that in a lot of parts of the country now, it is practically, if you can get on the ladder, it's practically more affordable to buy than it is to rent. Mm. Um, it's weird, you know, isn't and it? we certainly yeah. see yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, it's not just weird, but it's very wrong. Uh, but uh, having said that, we're pretty much at Celtic Tiger prices. Uh, are people confident, or, or is there any doubt? Is there a chink of doubt uh, because of uh, the increases that are coming down the line from uh, the European Central Bank? Uh, we've already had a, a number of increases, and I think I heard somebody say to expect a zero point seven five percent increase next time. Yeah, I mean, we can certainly see that interest rate increases are on the horizon. And I think consumers, you know, have been, you know, well communicated on that fact. However, we can see on data that's coming from the Banking and Payments Federation, who we would look to for for data on mortgage approvals. The average mortgage mortgage approval in Ireland now stands at um, just over €288,000. That's the average mortgage that's been um, uh, uh, approved here mm-hmm. in the country. That's up 8% on last year. And however, 16% of those mortgage approvals are not coming to a drawdown. So that basically means that you frustrated buyers out there that cannot use the mortgage approval that they currently have. Is that so, because there aren't houses to buy? Um, there, are, there isn't enough stock, although stock is improving, you know, and yeah. that is a, a good sign. But it's slow. And you can certainly see in some parts of the country where maybe new homes haven't ramped up as quickly as we would have hoped because they're still coming out and playing catch-up since COVID, you're certainly seeing that while overall stock has improved, you know, it certainly has a long, long way to go to meet the demand um, in most counties in this this market. You know, if I look at Louth, for example, um, there are 330 properties for sale in Louth as of last week. You know, that is not nearly enough um, to meet the demands that would be in the county. Now, that is an increase of almost 40 percent in the mm-hmm. quarter, which is good. But there's certainly more there um, that we be, could be doing. Stock in need, there's um, 648 properties, so about 650 um, in need for sale. For a county of need size, you know, that should be at least double that. Mm. You know, so supply is still an issue. Very strong demand. We have at least, um, you know, uh, two out of every five people that are mortgage approved cannot still find something to buy. And they're getting concerned because, you know, maybe their rent is increasing or they're concerned that their landlord might be selling their house that they're renting, you know, and they just want to get on with it. And they're seeing that maybe if their mortgage approval runs out, there's going to be an interest rate increase over the hill and they just want to buy. So, and that's fueling very strong demand in the market, mainly driven by a completely dysfunctional rental market. Okay, are people paying over the odds? And if they are, uh, is it sustainable uh, or uh, are we looking at an inevitable crash? No, I don't think we see a crash coming. I mean, because the market fundamentals are very different 
to where we might have been back in 2007, 2008. And I was working in property back then. I've worked in property for over 25 years. So you can see, you know, there are certain key markers here around liquidity. You know, the central bank rules that were brought in around mortgage lending rates, you know, at 3.5% of your your salary and so on, have certainly helped to um, keep the market, you know, running along at a at a a more kind of normalised rate. And we can certainly see where we are today that we're in a normalised trading market as we would see it. You know, mm. price increases were very frothy in the first and second quarter of the year. Those asking price increases have started to ease off now. That's good news for the market okay. because it's taking, you know, it, it, it's kind of easing that, you know, runaway uh, asking price increases, which is good. Mm. And we can see increased supply, which is equally good. And we can see those bank lending rules, which has, you know, certainly um, put a bit more structure and control on the, the mortgage side yeah. of uh, the demand. And taking so away a, a lot of the risk uh, that we exactly. suffered from during yeah, the Yeah, we're in a very yeah, different yeah. place yeah. than we were back in 2007. Okay. Thank you, Joanne. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for joining You're us. Welcome. Joanne Geary, Managing Director of MyHome.ie. Michael Reed on LMFM. But the thing I want to add, as one of the people who uh, perhaps uh, acted with the most ferocious determination to get the UK out of the EU, I, I think we have to bring some humility to this situation. And it's with humility that I want to accept and acknowledge that I and others did not always behave in a way which encouraged Ireland and the European Union to, to trust us to accept that they have legitimate interests legitimate interests that we're willing to respect because they do and we are willing to respect them and I'm sorry about that because relations with Ireland are not where they should be and we all need to work extremely hard to improve them and I I know that we are doing so. Actually the demise of our late majesty gave us an opportunity to meet leading Irish figures and I said to some of them you know I am sorry that we did not always respect your legitimate interests and I hope they won't mind me saying I felt I could feel uh, the ice thawing a bit. That's a, a humble former Brexit minister Steve Baker telling us how sorry he is and sorry he should be uh, for the damage done uh, between uh, the relationship uh, Irish-British uh, relationship uh, as a result of uh, the Brexit negotiations which as he said uh, he pushed uh, very hard. It's been a remarkable week apart from that uh, apology with Liz Truss on television last night talking about uh, the Stormont Assembly and no reason for it uh, to resume and uh, we also had Ian Paisley's son Kyle Paisley telling uh, the Oroctus that uh, because of the disastrous approach to Brexit by the British government that a united Ireland is now something that uh, is quite plausible. Uh, let's speak about all of this with uh, Damien McGinnity who's spokesperson with uh, the Border Communities Against Brexit Group. A very good morning to you Damien and thank you indeed for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. Is there hope on the horizon? It certainly appears um, that there is. I'd certainly be a person that looks at things with glass half full. You know, it, it's welcome that the British government have pivoted on the issue of the protocol. It's clear from Steve Baker's welcome comments. You know, sorry can be the hardest word to say that there is a realisation within uh, Westminster, within Whitehall, I think within the British establishment. Um, and if I listened to actually Lord Carmack this morning. He was interviewed with uh, Steve Nolan on BBC Radio Ulster. You know, the critical thing for them is this. 
they realise that um, a trade war with the EU is not in their economic or their national interest. So they have come to a decision that they need to negotiate. And of course, you know, it's over. It's a year ago since the EU put new proposals uh, with uh, Vice uh, Commissioner Sefcovic, where the EU really stretched themselves. And it's taken up until this point for the British government um, to come round to talk about those proposals. Now, one of the reasons that the British government didn't do that up to now was that it was obvious there was turmoil within the British cabinet. Um, Boris Johnson had made that many errors and mistakes. It, it was it became apparent that he was not going to last very long as Prime Minister and Liz Truss, the new Prime Minister, mm. has the full support of the ERG and she needed them to get elected. So now that she's elected, um, I suppose they can take a different tack in how they deal with this. And they need a resolution to this. And it would be a pity now that unionism wouldn't um, sit back and realise that the protocol will not be scrapped, that there will be a negotiated outcome here. I think mm. it would be very important that they, that they begin to take that on board. Do you think that there's been a, a rude awakening for the new Prime Minister and her Cabinet as a result of uh, the disastrous mini-budget and how they felt that they could act unilaterally and uh, and just work in isolation to the rest of the world only to wake up and realise that the rest of the world is watching and that when you make mistakes on that scale uh, well then there are consequences and uh, the economy practically collapsing in the UK as a result of those decisions. Yes, look the economy was in freefall, you know the bond market and pension funds were on the brink of collapse last Monday. Took the Bank of England to intervene with £65 billion to stabilise it um, they've had to roll back. And yes, they re- they recognise, and the industrialists and the bankers who back the Tory party know that they will be the huge loser if this was pushed on to a trade war. Listen, the North is 2.8% of the UK population, and the majority of the people who live in the North support the protocol. So from every angle, their position um, was ridiculous, and hopefully now common sense um, is is beginning to prevail. Unfortunately, this morning, um, Edwin Pooch has been out on, on early on radio. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. It's on Morning Ireland. Ian Paisley uh, Jr. has been on Nolan's show and they're apoplectic. They're um, saying, Pooch is saying this morning that this is next year could be the funeral of the Good Friday Agreement. Ian Paisley saying this morning that um, there'll be a deep freeze of the Assembly mm. for years. Um, so, you know, they need to come to a realisation that the rest of us who live on this island, and yes, while there are parts of the Good Friday Agreement that can be damaged by their actions, like the, the Assembly not returning, which is incredibly unfortunate, like the Northside institutions not mm. working. Well, power sharing is fundamental to the agreement, though, is it not? Of course it is. Mm, yeah. But what is also fundamental to the agreement and the successful event that was held in Dublin on Saturday by Ireland's future is self-determination. And if, if unionism wished to wreck the important institutions that are that is the executive and the North yeah. side institutions, that doesn't stop the rest of us in this island and it doesn't prevent the Irish government from beginning the, the, the process, a well-planned process that would lead ultimately to self-determination. All right, maybe on that note, uh, we'll uh, hear a, a little bit of uh, what Kyle Paisley said uh, to that Shannon Committee hearing last week. The prospect of the Emerald Isle becoming a single political entity is not so easily talked down as it used to be. The chief cause of this is, I believe, uncertainty over Brexit and the trade border that now exists between Northern Ireland and Great Britain. But what do I, as an Ulster Unionist, actually think about the idea of the United Ireland? This involves serious practicalities. Economists John Fitzgerald and Edgar Morganroth admit that there have very few studies of relevance to the issues of the economics of the United Ireland. Ian Dre, senior researcher at Martin Centre, has stated a United Ireland would be an economic political and social disaster for the Republic of Ireland and of course what is a disaster for one part of the island is a disaster for the whole island. Also could a United Ireland give an economic commitment to Northern Ireland comparable at least to the block grant from the British government which stands currently at 15 billion per annum. Economics matter but I think that uh, identity matters more. A man is not what he possesses it is his belonging to something that counts, or as a good book says, Neonormata and Severus Agdina Erbe Ata Avaha. Michelle O'Neill has stated constitutional change can be achieved without sacrificing identity or citizenship. But in point of fact, constitutional change brings about a new identity and a new citizenship. So one could be British and Unionist in the New Ireland, but a name only. Furthermore, if political ties with the rest of the UK are cut, it is to be feared that that might be an irreversible severance. At present, there is no assurance that Unionists would be able to campaign for a restoration of the Union. Right, uh, that's uh, Kyle Paisley. Isn't it, it, it remarkable? Wasn't it a, a remarkable uh, contribution, Damien? Uh, Kyle Paisley might not want a united Ireland, but there he is talking about such a prospect. Uh, and as we heard, talking about such a, a prospect, Oscar. It's remarkable. 
you know, um, Reverend Kyle is the twin brother of Ian Jr. Comes from that steeped free Presbyterian tradition uh, within his own family. We all know who his, who his dad was and what he represented. I think, you know, him alone getting involved is a step change. For him to say that, that Brexit has brought so much uncertainty while his brother has championed the hardest Brexit possible is remarkable. You know, he, he quotes from, from Scripture, but, you know, I think all of us here are Christian. And we all need to begin to get get to a place where we can love thy neighbour as thyself. Um, and I suppose it, there's a huge challenge here for unionism in that um, they can see that there is a sea change occurring. There's a sea change occurring within their own community. We heard incredibly powerfully on Saturday from uh, Ben Collins, uh, a unionist, talking about how he has changed his opinion. And he has written a book, which he's launching next week, on uh, his thoughts around United Ireland. The Reverend Karen Sutherman was on that platform with him. But for me, the biggest takeaway from last Saturday was James Nesbitt. Someone from Brashane, someone from the Protestant tradition, someone who played in a flute band, uh, and challenging his own community you know, to, to, to discuss what new political arrangements on this island would look like, to discuss it in community halls, in church halls, in orange halls, he talked about um, how he felt that Stormont uh, was abysmal, you know, the fact that, that, that it has collapsed, how he expressed his own view that he thought Brexit was a disaster. So th- there, there is a, a considerable cohort of people who would identify from that unionist tradition, who fundamentally disagree with the path that unionism has taken and are appalled at the politics that they see going on in Westminster. Mm. And they want to be able, you know, to to grapple with and take some control of the political destiny, not only of their own community, but of the rest of us on this island. And also remember that unionism represents 14% of the population on the island of Ireland. But within the UK, they're less than 1%. And, you know, they have begun, people in unionism have begun to recognise that perhaps their political identity is best represented within that 14% on this island than incredibly diluted in the rest of the UK. But there's still a a lot of work uh, if you're going to convince all unionists to be done uh, of uh, the merits of of such a a discussion and uh, there's little or no doubt about that. Liz Truss says there's no reason for them not to take up their seats in Stormont. Uh, But the reality of the situation is that there is the very real prospect, is there not, of an election being called on the 28th of this month? Yes, that looks very likely. Um, now, whether or not they will kick it down the road a little bit, I suppose the big thing on the horizon is the, is the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement next Easter. President Biden is, uh, there's an open invitation, I believe, to him to attend that. Of course, everyone, and I'm, and, and I'm, I'm sure the Irish government would like to be able to hail this as a, a success story with the executive restored. But as, as I have said already, you know, the executive is a crucial part of the Good Friday Agreement. But if unionism doesn't want to enter into power sharing, then the other fundamental mm. part of that agreement is self-determination. Okay, do you- this is the challenge for the Irish government, you know, to step up and, to, to, and uh, the Tornister was there on Saturday 
you know, and, and there is a mood now where people want to see planning for constitutional change in the form of a citizens' assembly. This mm. is a, a long process. It could be five or seven mm. years away from a border poll, but this is the trajectory that we're on as, a, a, mm. as an island. OK, if President Biden does a, a, attend, Damien, do you think that he'll be a, attending uh, the an occasion to celebrate the 25th anniversary, or as Edwin Poots put it, uh, the funeral? Uh, of uh, the Good Friday Agreement? Well, I think it would be quite unlikely that if, if the executive w- was not restored that, that President Biden probably would not attend. You know, p- at that level, at that presidential level, they want mm. to attend something that's successful. But, you know, Irish America and President Biden is, is very much at the centre of this. He wished to see a settlement here. He wished to see the the Good Friday Agreement protected, but he also recognises, and, and, and the American uh, lobby recognises that, that this veto that unionism is presenting isn't sustainable. And indeed, we had a, a very clear message from Brendan Boyle at Saturday's event in uh, in the Three Arena that he wishes to see the preparation now uh, for a referendum in the future on Irish unity. So okay. that's where Irish America is currently at. Damien, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. Damien McGuinnessy is a spokesperson with Border Communities uh, Against Brexit. Uh, and we'll uh, finish off uh, this conversation by hearing just uh, another little bit more of what Kyle Paisley had to say. Nationalists speak about winning hearts and changing minds. My heart is fixed and can't be won, but... All things considered, winning over moderate unionists to the idea of a new Ireland is a Herculean task. My prayer is that political unionism will win the hearts and minds of moderate nationals by building up local democracy, by redoubling its efforts to sell the union another Herculean task, and that Britain will undo the damage caused to Northern Ireland and relationships within these islands by its disastrous Brexit policy. All right. A strong message from Kyle Paisley. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, over 200 people have registered uh, for information about uh, their birth. Uh, people who would have been adopted who now are entitled to, to information about their birth, their early lives uh, and indeed uh, access uh, to a training service. Uh, that's uh, despite some teething problems yesterday with the portal that's run by Tusla which resulted in people from overseas not being able to to access uh, the service. Uh, apparently that was uh, fixed later in the day. Uh, but uh, this is a, a, a step forward, uh, many would say, but there is some criticism. Susan Lohan, co-founder of the Adoption Rights Alliance, is with us. And a very good morning to you, Susan, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, in, principle, this is, in, in principle, this is what you want. You want people to have the information about themselves, basically, uh, who they are and where they came from, uh, but you're not happy about Tusla running the service. No, and, and just a little point to your listeners. Uh, adopted people, like every other Irish citizen, have always had um, a full right to uh, their personal information. But successive governments, particularly this government, has turned that on its head and said, no, no, we we didn't enjoy the same rights as everybody else. Um, And that's why this really cumbersome legislation was required. In fact, this legislation is merely... um, 
I suppose, a roadmap as to how one would access the, the, informa- the personal information, which is guaranteed to every other citizen and doesn't require the cumbersome legislation. So once again, adopted people, fostered people, those born in mother and baby in county homes are being made to feel like second class citizens and jump through hoops, which no other citizen is required to do. So... On, on to the other point. Yes, yeah. of course, we want everybody to have access to their information. Now, Kusla, there, there couldn't actually have been a worse candidate organisation to run this service, which the legislation sets out, because for decades, Kusla, and, and of course, they were previously the HSE and previously the health boards, their modus operandi was to deny adopted people this information. And the Minister, Roderick O'Gorman, expects us to believe that this agency, Kusla, without any input from survivor groups, which I find astonishing, has managed to do a 180-degree flip on their, on their modus operandi, on their corporate culture, um, and that suddenly they're going to be... Uh, you know, a, an organisation that is that is open to dealing with uh, the most desperate inquiries from people for their information. Mm. Uh, I'm very disturbed uh, by your opening statement, Susan, uh, and a, a little bit uh, confused. Uh, you said that people had the same entitlement, uh, that adopted yes. people had the same uh, entitlements as others, but were denied uh, their yeah. rights. Uh, why so? So from... From, uh, as your listeners might not know, but EU law takes precedent over Irish law. Now, in fact, there never was any law preventing Irish people, adopted people, from accessing their information. Uh, the, the practice of pulling the shutters down uh, arose after a Supreme Court ruling in the late 90s. Uh, but there, wa- there actually was no law prohibiting that access. And EU law um, gave every Irish citizen the right to access all of their personal information. Uh, I mean, as fundamental as their birth certificate, of course, and to uh, to know everything that was held on them by various organisations and to know why that information was held on them. So the Irish government is going to find themselves more than likely um, in the European courts in years to come. And the Data Protection Commissioner, the DPC, um, has also... Um, said that we should have enjoyed the same rights as every other Irish citizen. Mm. So this is a classic Irish solution to an Irish problem. What was the motivation Uh, for it, though? Well, it was to keep a lid on the scandal that everybody knew was a scandal. Um, Of course, I'm in a lucky position that I went looking for information on myself and my mother in the 1980s when the adoption agencies had kind of forgotten the sort of criminal practices that they had once engaged in because they were no longer placing as many children for adoption. So I was an early searcher. Um, I met a very nice social worker who said, well, of course you would like information on yourself and your mother and we'll give that to you. Um, But fast forward to the late 80s, early 90s, and the shutters were beginning to be pulled down as new social workers were opening up their former colleagues' files and going, oh my God, what on earth happened here? And these organisations pulled down the shutters to protect their reputations. And we can point particularly to the likes of St. Patrick's Guild, the now disgraced, everybody knows what 
you know, we'd been saying about them for years was true. Uh, they were at the forefront of illegal adoptions. So various churches, particularly the Catholic Church, and of course successive governments uh, encouraged this uh, practice of shutting down the information mm. to prevent yet another scandal emerging. Yeah, the components of what was Holy Catholic Ireland. Indeed, indeed, absolutely. and But most unchristian, if I could say. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, and what they put people through. Um, It's quite incredible. Uh, Do you believe uh, that uh, a fear of uh, litigation uh, would have also fed into the thinking to withhold information from people? Yes, and and of course we've seen that practice with uh, the industrial school scandal in Ireland, the Magdalen Laundry scandal. So the government actually, um, when it was... um, you know, uncovering information in in the late 90s about the industrial schools, they very definitely came across aspects of what would become known as the mother and baby home scandal. And um, then again, in in the late noughties, as the Magdalen Laundry scandal and was being uncovered, um, we have on we have on record that um, a civil servant who was reviewing interdepartmental records became very aware about what went on in the mother and baby homes and passed that information up the line, but that was very quickly uh, buried. And, of course, we have the perfect political storm at the moment because Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael have never been in coalition before. Had either one of them been in opposition, they would be screaming from the rafters for justice. But now they can provide cover to one another. And then they have the Green Party and Roderick O'Gorman being the most obliging Mm. mudguard to them. Um, And it's just so unfortunate for for those of us who've been waiting for decades. It's hard hard not to be angry. I I think um, that's clear, Susan. and the, the mothers, uh, what, what your listeners might not mm. realise, is that the mothers have no information rights under this legislation. Okay. So there's been no right. attempt to offer a quid pro quo to the mothers either. Okay, that's bizarre. And uh, I'll ask you about that again in a moment. But am I right in thinking that before this week, uh, that if you sought information about your mother, um, you would uh, be put in contact with your mother if your mother had been seeking information about you? Yes. And Um, and did that always happen? No, it did not. And the National Adoption Contact Preference Register, which Mm. was administered by the Adoption Authority of Ireland, well, previously the Adoption Board, um, we have had many um, complaints about them not putting people in contact, not joining the dots. I'm asking you that because uh, I know somebody personally uh, who met their mother uh, in the last few weeks uh, and discovered that they had both been looking for each other but they weren't put in yeah. touch with each other. I know, isn't that just awful? And when you think of the ageing cohort here, you know, so many of the mothers are in the range from, you know, 70 to 90s. To deny people that contact, that comfort, that closure, I, I just think it's beyond cruel, it really is. Yeah. And there is no excuse in this day and age when we have... Uh, databases, you know, which can create these, you know, pick out the matching criteria. Is it an administration error, though, or is it um, something that was done knowingly? Uh, Well, one could ask that question, and, you know, I think one should, because the Adoption Authority also hold um, 
adoption records for certain agencies mm. now defunct St. Teresa's agency, which uh, uh, shut up shop back in the uh, 70s, I think it was. So, you know, if they, you know, if they wish to, you know, maybe the adoption as board as it then was did something inappropriate, uh, one has to ask that question. And with the lack of transparency and lack of oversight by an independent body, we will have to continue to ask that question, uncomfortable as they might be for the organisations concerned. If they've nothing to hide, well, then they should come out and, and, and prove that. Mm. And in the case of the, your acquaintance, mm. he or she should be demanding an explanation or, or um, a full thorough investigation as to why they were not put in contact earlier mm. because there is no plan B for par- for people mm. whose parents die or unfortunately now we're actually seeing the generation of adopted people dying mm. before they ever receive yeah. you, know, you make can't any buy back that time and uh, if it's you too cannot. late it, it's too late uh, and that's the way yeah. it is and if people are reunited as you know Susan it's a very emotional uh, affair for people a, a significant life event but tainted by that news yeah. uh, which can lead to anger and uh, undermine the whole thing again Absolutely. And, you know, as I said in my opening remarks, the, the fact that Tusla in, in their, you know, magical reinvention of themselves have not consulted with survivors. And that includes the, uh, the dedicated group of survivors, which was appointed to the Department of Children and Quality back in 2018. Mm. So there's a dedicated group there. Um, they have not consulted us to ask our opinions on how they should best approach matters is both astonishing and, and scandalous and right. just sinister, I believe. And the mothers, they, just just to conclude, Susan, because our time is running out, uh, but that, yeah. that, that uh, issue that uh, you mentioned a moment ago, that the mothers can't trace their children. Yeah. That's, yeah. Um, that's a real course, problem, isn't it? The only mechanism, which is now called the contact preference register, this time around, it's a statutory instrument. Now, whether they're actually, I sincerely hope that the adoption authority are going to uh, use the data that was on their previous uh, register, because, of course, a lot of people believed once they'd made this registration on the on the, on the, um, the register back in, in 2005, when it previously went live, that you know, people would be actively, proactively working on that registration and seeking out the other party to their inquiry. Of course, that never happened. So there is already uh, a sense of further disappointment in in people and, and, and evidence to them that there is no actual thinking, no compassion behind any of this, no sense of restitution for the suffering that people endured. So... If any mother is out there listening or if a relative of a mother, please, please, please do register on this contact preference register because at the moment the numbers are totally skewed. It's 89% um, adopted people and 10% uh, natural mothers and then 1% other relatives. So unfortunately, a great many adopted people are going to be disappointed um, because their parent or parents mm. have not registered their preference. Maybe due to death, unfortunately, maybe due to not wanting, and I fully understand this, not wanting to engage with the very organisation 
that took their child from them in the first place. I mean, that's the, the, the original act of insensitivity. Um, so it's, uh, you know, I'd love to come back to you in a couple mm. of months' time and be proved wrong, but yeah. I... I I, you know, yeah. unfortunately, I'm a cynic on these matters. OK, I hope you are wrong, Susan, uh, as, as much as you do. Um, but uh, yeah. we, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed uh, for joining Thank us. Thank you again, Michael. Thank you as always. Susan Lohan is uh, the co-founder of uh, the Adoption Rights Alliance. Michael Reed on LMFM. Uh, it appears uh, that uh, the former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdell is to be given a, a new identity and uh, to be relocated to an English-speaking country uh, and there will be some limited financial support to him uh, as a result of him turning state evidence uh, and indeed his solicitor has been talking about that his defence counsel Michael O'Higgins uh, says that he's going to live in exile constantly looking over his shoulder and constantly watching what he, he says to strangers trips home may be possible at some point but only in the most covert anonymous circumstances and only for brief periods he said it is a very very heavy burden like taking your life and Standing it on its head. Of course, Dowdall had uh, admitted, along with his father, to facilitating a gang uh, who are believed uh, to have been responsible for the Regency Hotel murder of David Byrne. Let's speak to uh, a former Garda detective, Pat Murray, uh, who is also the author of uh, The Making of a a Detective, a a Garda's story of investigating some of Ireland's most notorious crimes. Uh, Very good morning, Pat. Thanks for joining us on the, the programme. This morning, uh, this is a, a remarkable trial by Irish standards. Uh, it would seem to those of us uh, who aren't too familiar uh, with uh, witness protection programs, are, are they commonplace? Uh, they're not that common, no. And they really came into before in the Veronica Kieran uh, trial, and uh, that's when it was this the witness protection uh, units were set up, you know. Uh, you saw there were people, uh, criminals had uh, come on board to give um, uh, uh, witness evidence about uh, uh, the crimes that certain persons were standing uh, accused of before the courts. So it is a huge thing for a witness to go into the witness protection unit because it does turn their life upside down. They have to leave everything behind and start a new life somewhere else, you know. Mm. It's not an easy decision. And I had cases where uh, witnesses that we could put into the witness protection unit, but they they chose not to give evidence and not to cooperate because they just said it it just wasn't worth it, like, you Mm. know. Uh, And Uh, where does the threat against them end? Uh, I mean, it's all well and good. They go off uh, to some remote part of uh, America. But what about family and friends or acquaintances that are left behind? Yeah, well, that's always a a worry. But the uh, Gardaí do put on uh, protection on these people as well. Uh, You know, they may not move them from the house or that, but they would have uh, a degree of protection. But, uh, you know, uh, these are things that are all worked out, uh, you know, as it goes on but what I'm saying is that like you know um, the way it works is that it's the Attorney General's office that like you know uh, uh, governs the witness protection scheme which is run by the Gardaí and there is a special unit within 
the Gardaí, uh, the Witness Protection Unit, who are affiliated and part of the Special Detective Unit. Mm. Now, they're a highly professional uh, bunch of people who, uh, you know, confidentiality, obviously, is a, is, the huge, is a big thing with them. And they answer to their chief superintendent, who eventually... Uh, uh, you know, uh, speaks with the Assistant Commission of Crime and Security and that. So it's mm. there's a very tight structure there. And the, the ordinary guard and the, and the people even in investigations, like if I had a, an investigation and someone's on the witness protection scheme, I wouldn't even know where they were going or where they were being held or yeah. anything. Like, you know, mm. you're told nothing. And that's the way it should be. I take it, though, a decision like this uh, isn't one that's taken lightly. It's a very big decision and will uh, upset uh, a lot of people. The Dowdalls, Junior and Senior, have pleaded guilty to very serious criminal charges, uh, but uh, they won't pay any consequence in this jurisdiction for it uh, in return for uh, the evidence that they'll give against somebody else. uh, They'll be given a new life. Uh, That won't seem seem fair to a lot of people. Well, they, they may be out of a. Uh, well, I know in respect of some people that uh, in some cases I had and they wanted to give evidence, but it wasn't at the at the level of uh, witness protection. Uh, they and they were involved in criminality. They their crimes had to be what we call that. We'd have they'd have to be cleansed first. They'd have to go through the court system. They'd have to get their sentence. And it was only then they were eligible to give evidence, like, you know. Mm. So uh, I think it probably is something the same, maybe, with the Dowdalls. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not sure that, like, but it's not a decision that's taken lightly. And it's a huge, huge undertaking, like, you know. And then where do you send these people? Where abroad did it go that they're going to be somewhat protected? But the Gardaí have communication with other uh, police forces in Europe, in Canada, in America, where... Uh, you know, her witness, uh, I think it's the Marshal's office in America mm. that deal with uh, uh, people coming from uh, Europe or that to, to start a new life, you know, to be mm. looked after, a new identity. But it is a huge, 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 um, uh, and, and I guess the person giving the evidence is going to say, well, what am I, yeah. uh, I might as well get out of here and... Uh, do you know what I mean? Start a new life and be somewhat protected and that would be looking over my shoulder. But I guess they're always going to be look, overlooked, looking over their shoulder. Yeah, like, I'm sure know. they are. And when, when, whenever they are wherever they end up living, uh, they'll be looking over their shoulder, but they'll also uh, enjoy some level of protection and monitoring from local police forces. I, I, take, oh, it, yes. I take it that's a, a two-way street. As a, a detective, were you aware of uh, anybody living in this country who was under a witness protection programme? No, I, the ordinary guard and even like you know, yeah. detective inspectors was you would not know if someone was under under a scheme from another country. You just don't know. That's how tight these things are kept. Mm. You 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 can't afford to have a leak of any sort of because it does jeopardise someone's life, and that's it. So uh, you, you know, you just wouldn't know, and that's mm. it. You just don't know, and that's it. Like, you know. what, what, what did you think of, of uh, the policing around uh, the special criminal court yesterday? It was uh, remarkable, uh, I think, or it seemed remarkable to a, a lot of us. Yeah, well, look, uh, you have uh, units there, like the emergency response unit, who do protect and are governed to protect witnesses who are going to give evidence, like, and uh, they will always be on on standby, like you know, and be present mm. at uh, uh, c- cases that are going to start, like you know. Mm. So uh, when you look at it, uh, like you know, you have a, 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 a 
the hot pot of all the people involved in the crime or the criminality around, let's say, that particular feud, all, let's say, culminating or congregating at the special criminal court or outside it or whatever. It's a great facility for, let's say, the other side to uh, monitor and follow and do you know what I mean? Mm. The people mm. that may be involved, which would lead to intimidation and that. But you look at um so but the guards do a very good job mm. and the emergency response unit are very, very professional and okay. very and well used to uh, handling those type of situations. Uh, and uh, the, the fact that there were armed plainclothes detectives in the court, uh was that a precautionary measure or, or was it uh, that they would have uh, expected something to happen or would have feared that something might have happened? No, but if they weren't there, there was always a fear of something happening. But the right. fact that they were there will always uh, knock on the head any, uh, you know, yeah. uh, anything happening. Like I've had it myself, like at, at, at court cases where we had families, you know, who would be up in arms over someone you know, hmm. especially when it came to sentencing and that, like, you know, and depending on what side of the the, the, the void they came from, uh, you could have situations where it could kick off in court and we always had enough police. We, we, we preempt, uh, you know, what may happen and we always cover it with manpower and uh, uh, a strategy that would show, like, you know, hmm. that it would, nothing would kick off and if it did, it would be... A, knocked on the head fairly quick like you know okay. but uh, th- that's just part of policing it's part of what goes on like you know okay. but uh, the uh, witness protection uh, protection strategy is very very good and the guards do an excellent job really uh, top class and no one knows about it like we don't mm. even know if you looked for I'd say freedom of information or that as to what how many people are on that, that protection uh, scheme, you wouldn't be told, like, you know, it's, mm. just, it's just, that's how tight it is, and that's the way it has to be. Okay, uh, well... Dealing with people's lives, like, you know, they're, they're, they're you know... Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah, well, you know uh, about uh, investigating some of Ireland's most notorious crimes, as it says uh, uh, in the title of your book, The Making of a Detective. Pat, we leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much indeed for that insight and for joining us on the programme this morning. Pat Murray, retired detective inspector. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, as is usual, around this time on a Tuesday for our weekly visit to the Garda Crime Desk. As usual, there's a, a number of incidents which Garda are investigating locally. Perhaps you can assist with those investigations. We're joined uh, by Garda Adele um, Doug and Dugdale, I beg your pardon, uh, for the report this week. And we're going to start with a couple of distraction burglaries, as they're known. Both of these occurred in separate locations on Friday of last week. Yeah, Michael. So the first one there was between 11.45am and 12 midday where a male called to a home in the Lisnagun area of Carneros on Sunday the 30th of September. So this male identified himself as a member of a Garda Shiakana and produced what appeared to be a Garda badge. The male showed the female a quantity of cash and asked if it was her money. The female, to be fair, realised that this was not right and asked the male to leave. The unknown male left in a navy blue coloured vehicle in the direction of Carnaroth. So if any of your listeners were in the area or observed anything suspicious or were travelling on this road and had dash cam footage, we would ask that you make contact with Kells Garda Station on 046 9280820 or Garda Confidential Line on 1800 666 111. And there was a, a second uh, distraction burglary. 
Yeah, on the same day, this time around 12 midday, um, a male called to the home uh, in the area of Lambertstown in Comessen. Um, again, similarly to the last one, this male informed the owner that he was a member of Vangarda Shiakona and produced a badge. The male stated that he observed people running from her home and that the male wanted to check the house to make sure everything was okay. The owner uh, refused to let him in and the male left. Again, if any of your listeners have any information in relation to this incident, um, to contact Trimgarda Station on 046-943-1322. Okay, two separate uh, attempts in separate locations on the same day. Is this type of crime commonplace? Unfortunately, at the moment, um, this is becoming a trend that we are seeing, especially in the Meadloud area. So um, we're just asking people that... um, if people are coming to their house and they're not expecting anybody to come, um, look out the window to get a good view of the caller. Um, there's no nobody is to be embarrassed if they have to ask the caller to leave their contact details. Um, any legitimate person, especially a member of Vanguard of Shikana, will wait outside um, to confirm the identity of the caller if they wish. Okay, it's a serious crime in itself impersonating a member of Vanguard Shiakana. And I think you said in both of those failed burglary attempts uh, that the thugs uh, were uh, showing guard badges. Uh, what else do they do to try and distract people to get into their homes? Yeah, so this is the most common one that we're hearing about is um, um, people coming to impersonate a member of Garda Shiakana. And what they're doing is they're telling them that they've found a quantity of cash that they're hoping that perhaps you know, that the unfortunate uh, homeowner has after coming from collecting money in a post office or something and that they, that they feel that they've dropped something outside in their yard or that the other one is that we're noticing is that people are calling to their home said that their pet has gone into their back garden and that they need to get the pet back and ask them to come in through the house. So obviously they're trying to gain trust in, 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 in the homeowner that way. Okay, just be very cautious. Don't let anybody in if you don't know them, I think is uh, the basic advice. And if they're insisting on getting in, uh, verify their identity. And that includes calling the guard station uh, to check if whoever it is that claims to be a member of Vanguardia Shiakana is a member of Vanguardia Shiakana. The guards will never mind you doing that. No, absolutely. The basic rule you're right, Michael, is if you don't know the person at the door, don't let them in. And if you are anxious, just call your local guard station. Okay. Uh, you wanted to give some tips to people uh, about staying safe uh, in their own home uh, as well. That's uh, obviously uh, one risk uh, that people face, but there are others. Yeah, so like I said before, um, if you're not expecting a caller, you know, just give yourself the time before you answer the door, look out the window and make sure your back door is locked before you open up the front door. Um, like I said, you can ask them to leave a calling card and if you are anxious, just um, ring your local guard station. Okay. You're appealing for information today as well about a burglary that occurred in Loud Village last week. Yeah, so this one occurred on Friday the 28th of September at around 6.35pm. A home in uh, the Loud Village was broken into and unfortunately a number of valuable jewellery was taken. So if anybody has any information or seen anything suspicious to make contact with RD Garda Station on 041-685-3222. Okay. Uh, We've unfortunately a fatal road traffic collision uh, to report on and I'm sure people are are very much aware of uh, the loss of uh, the life of a, a motorcyclist uh, in Dunleer. Yeah, so that unfortunately happened on Sunday, just gone the 2nd of October around 1.15pm on the R132 road um, near Dunleer. So one vehicle heading towards from Dunleer to draw the collided with another vehicle. So we're just asking any of your listeners that were travelling on this road 
if they have any information in relation to this um, incident, please contact Royal Garda Station on 041-987-4200. Okay, and uh, just to conclude, uh, you wanted to pass on some advice uh, for students if uh, they're looking for accommodation. Yeah, so unfortunately there has been an increase of around 30% in accommodation fraud this year. So Gardaí are just advising people to be wary of rental scams um, when students are returning to college. Um, just check recognised um, and use only recognised letting agents or deal with people who are trusted. Websites can be cloned, so just double check your URL um, to ensure it's a real website. Okay, Garda Adele Dugdale of Trim Garda Station. Thank you very much indeed. We'll return to the Garda Crime Desk in around the same time on next Tuesday's programme. That's our programme for today and God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning, bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 87 Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.